This is Sound Education in Law, a podcast where we talk to the experts on the latest law topics you need to know about. I'm your host, Susanna Lobez, and in today's episode, we're going to take a look at the scope and availability of two remedies available to disaffected company shareholders under the Corporations Act, oppression and derivative actions. Joining us on the line is James Dabachi, a director and corporate and commercial litigator at Chamberlain's Law Firm in Sydney. James, welcome back to Sound Education. Thanks so much for joining us. Susanna, I'm delighted to be here. Really appreciate the invite. Well, let's start with oppression actions. It's been said that this is probably the most effective remedy for unhappy, dissatisfied shareholders. So back to basics, James, what is oppression and when can and will a court make an oppression order? Thanks for asking, Susanna. Um, The very short point is um, the court can make an oppression order if Section 232 of the Corporations Act is satisfied. And Section 232, uh, you'll be pleased to hear, I'm not going to read it out, but essentially it deals with um, this concept of uh, conduct that is unfairly prejudicial, unfairly discriminatory against a member or members of the company. And while a member and a shareholder are not always the same thing, we sometimes treat them that way. And so you can think of um, the court's discretion arising to make an order in this area where a shareholder has been treated unfairly. And that's where we find the Section 232 um, issues arising. So um, what is it? It is a, uh, an area of law arising under the Corporations Act that allows shareholders to get some relief, some remedy. There is a wide range of orders that a court may make where it is satisfied that there has been oppressive conduct. What are some of the most common orders that courts have made, James? Yes. um, If I could turn to your first point first, Susanna, the range is huge. Um, And this is a range of orders that the court might make pursuant to Section 233 of the Corporations Act. So, um, what, what the court must do, um, if, if so moved, is form a view regarding whether a shareholder has been unfairly prejudiced. That's that section 232 point I uh, mentioned. And then if the court forms that view, then there is a discretion um, to make orders under 233. And the range of orders that can be made is huge. Uh, constitution of the company can be amended. The company can institute or, or conduct proceedings. Or a person can be required to do a specified act. So there's a huge range of orders, but to get to the heart of your question, Susanna, the most common orders made are what we sometimes say are a share sale or a wind-up. And so an unhappy shareholder who says they are being unfairly prejudiced under 232 might say, well, the orders I want under 233 are either want my shares sold at a fair value or I want the whole company wound up. And it's often those two that litigators in this area find themselves bouncing around between. And what are the general principles that will be applied by a court when considering an oppression application? It's an interesting one. um, And the list is sort of non-exhaustive. But um, if we think about some of the criteria the court will look to, um, there are a couple of, with respect, extremely helpful judgments um, that are often referred to even in the most recent cases. One of them is the judgment of uh, Tamanovich and uh, some comments Justice Austin made at first instance in that matter. 
Um, and it looks to uh, one of the fuzzy and challenging issues of corporate oppression of, well, what is unfairness? How do we decide if some conduct has been unfair to a member or the members as a whole? And what um, the court helpfully says in relation to this is that unfairness is assessed um, by whether objectively, so it's an objective test in the eyes of a commercial bystander, there's been unfairness or conduct so unfair that reasonable directors who consider the matter would have not have thought the decision fair. And things like disappointed expectations, even disappointed legitimate expectations is not enough. It must be conduct that is seen to be unfair. And now interestingly, there's some, there's some useful obiter um, from Justice Young in a 1995 decision, um, uh, Feksudo and uh, Bosnjak, um, sorry, 1998 decision, the judges must not remain in their ivory tower when considering unfairness. And so where some of us might say, oh, that conduct appears to be just not cricket or that conduct appears to be sharp or something like that. Um, it's not a question of a moral judgment or an ethical judgment. It's a very precise judgment of what would be construed as unfair, um, noting that objective test. Now, I don't want to send you to sleep, Susanna, so I won't go through all these criteria, but I'll just highlight a couple of others. Um, and one of the most important of which is timing. And regarding timing, um, the court must consider uh, whether conduct is unfair at the time that the proceedings are commenced. So if I file my uh, statement of claim, as it were, whatever my originating process is today, the question is, is it unfair today? And then if I find myself in court in two years, the question is, what sort of relief is appropriate in two years, if that makes sense. And, and, and I know that's a little fuzzy. So depending on when you're listening to this, let's say you're listening to this in 2022, the question is, uh, is the conduct unfair now in 2022? And then the question for the court is in 2024, what are the orders we should make to cure the unfairness now in 2024? And that timing issue is gonna be an important one that we will come to discuss, I suspect a little later in this conversation. So, Basically, the court has to be satisfied that the shareholder is sufficiently dissatisfied. So let's get down <laughs> to the juicy stuff, James. What types yes. of conduct have courts held to amount to oppression? Uh, all sorts. Uh, and there are some good sort of pick and mix examples. Uh, one of the uh, most common we bump into in practice is sort of the use of a what's sometimes called a mini board meeting prior to a genuine board meeting where some directors might get themselves together and decide what's actually gonna happen in the board meeting. So it sort of undermines the nature of the board meeting, determining how the majority will vote. Uh, sometimes payment of excessive salaries to directors um, and excluding people. So excluding directors from the operation of a company and excluding shareholders, blunting their ability to engage with the company they own uh, sometimes the failure to pay adequate dividends, but that's not always the case. Uh, and then uh, look, that list can go on forever. And I should just make this important point. Um, a failure to have a ready buyer for one's shares is not enough for oppression. So if I can put that another way, I might be a shareholder in a company and I might say, I don't like the way this company is being run. I want to sell my shares and get out. And the simple fact that no one's going to buy them or the simple fact that I can't get, you know, the majority shareholders to buy me out is not enough to be oppressive. There must be some additional unfairness to satisfy the test. 
So the pre-meeting cabal gets together and uh, has its own little agenda. Well, let's look at some of the examples of decisions of the courts in oppression cases, James. I know you've got lots at your fingertips. First, <laughs> the New South Wales Supreme Court decision in Dr Leon Shanahan and Jetisi, or Jetties, I can't tell how it's pronounced, the yeah. minority shareholders were unsuccessful in their oppression action. So here, James, why did the court refuse to make any order despite finding that the conduct of the majority was oppressive in this case? Yes, and this is that timing point that we, uh, that we set up earlier in our chat, Susanna. So what happened here is we have um, this company operating an eye hospital. We have a minority who retire uh, and they stop acting as eye surgeons in the hospital, but they continue to be paid dividends and these sorts of things. So they're having a lovely time on the golf course. And we have a majority who continue to exert themselves in the hospital, making all the money for the company that is operating the eye hospital. And over time, the majority do things like install a director who stymies the minority's uh, interests, who fails to appoint a new surgeon to really get the uh, get the hospital back on track, and then uh, who puts the company inappropriately into voluntary administration. And the court spends considerable time working through this. And I'll just say now that 2018 decision was upheld on appeal in 2019. Um, the court the court works through all this conduct and says, "Oh yes, that is indeed oppressive." But crucially, during the conduct of the proceedings the minority and the majority attend a mediation. And uh, at or around that mediation, there's an agreement struck. And that agreement is that the minority will sell their shares to the majority and they get a price that is close to $2 million. And the court works through the value of the shares and finds that that $2 million is probably above market. And so the minority have probably got a pretty darn good price for their shares. And so, despite the fact that there was indeed oppressive conduct at the time the proceedings were filed on day one, by the time we get two years down the track, or I think it might have been three and a half, four years down the track to day 1000, um, there is no longer any oppression that the minority are suffering. And so there is no work for section 233 of the Act to do. And so, there was no relief ordered. And so not only did the minority who were being oppressed lose, they also had to pay the costs of the majority who they lost to. Wow. Well, from one golf course in uh, New South Wales to a couple in Victoria, and this was a, a dispute over the merger of two golf clubs. That was the background to this uh, Victorian Court of Appeal decision in Falkingham and Peninsula Kingswood court golf club why was the golf club members oppression action unsuccessful in this case yes um this was an interesting one um what we have here is we've got two golf clubs and uh the uh complexity of the golf club issues arise when uh you know potentially the market for golf clubs <laughs> changes and these two clubs that were not particularly financially successful but who owned large pieces of real estate resolved to merge and the effect of that merger essentially was that golf club two would have all of its members transferred over golf club one golf club two would sell the piece of land that the golf course was on and then the 
uh, proceeds of that sale would be directed to the success of Golf Club One that would, uh, of course, be, be sort of renamed or, or, or rebadged or, or whatever we want to call it um, for the um, continued merged success of the newly merged golf club. And um, in short, that transaction proceeds. Um, the land is sold and the members are transferred and all this sort of thing. Now, there is a plaintiff who is unhappy with this, who essentially is trying to unravel the position. And when I say unravel, uh, what the plaintiff says is the power to uh, appoint or add new members to the club, to admit new members to club one from club two, um, is only permissible to be used by the board for certain reasons. And those reasons do not include a merger. And so the company and the directors of the company used the powers they had for a purpose that was improper. And so that was oppressive. Now, what was interesting is that um, the court may have indeed been convinced that that misuse of power, use of the power for a purpose it was not granted for, may indeed have been oppressive, but the court exercised its discretion not to unwind this fairly serious transaction for what you and I might describe with the greatest of respect as a procedural irregularity in the uh, admission of new membership. So what we have here, and I say this with the greatest of respect, is a fairly real world approach adopted by the court to say, well, yes, technically there is indeed section 232 unfairness here, but the court is not going to exercise its discretion to make a section 233 order. And part of the reason for that was the plaintiff's delay in bringing the application and as I say, with the greatest of respect and reading between the lines, there may have been a bit of uh, real world commercial utility uh, applied by the court to sort of say, look, we're not going to unwind this very large transaction because of this quite small issue. Now, in the decision by the Queensland Court of Appeal in Asia Pacific Joint Mining and All Ways Resources, the issue on appeal was the most appropriate remedy, whether uh, sale or winding up, which you outlined for us earlier. So here, James, why did the court reject the appeal against the trial judge's order for winding up the company? Yeah, this was a really interesting one. So um, this is sort of a fairly complex, fairly expensive bunch of mining companies. And, you know, what the defendant essentially accepts is, yes, okay, you've got me. Uh, I have engaged in unfairly prejudicial conduct. And so I agree with what the Supreme Court judge said at first instance, that's fine. But what I resist is the Section 233 relief that was ordered. This should not be a winding up of the whole company. We don't need to take that drastic step. Instead, let's just go with a share sale. Now, the very short point is the Court of Appeal agreed with the Supreme Court, which is to say the Court of Appeal agreed that the Supreme Court was right, that this was a case where a wind up was appropriate. And if I can just linger on some of the arguments that the appellant raised and the sort of broader factual matrix, as you and I know, Susanna, it's a pretty drastic step to wind up a company. You'll have employees who are disappointed. You'll have uh, external contractors who are disappointed. You'll have costs incurred for the liquidator coming in to get involved. And on one view, 
it, it is a less than perfectly efficient process, if I might put that lightly. And so generally, um, uh, we, we might say it's a very drastic step that, that should only be taken if it is indeed the correct step. Well, here the court said, yes, it is. And among the reasons for the court finding that is that firstly, valuation of the shares would be extensive, expensive and time consuming. And some of the assets of the company were an unlitigated claim for $33 million. So an interesting issue arises, <laughs> which is, well, how do you value a company which has a $33 million claim uh, and you don't know if they're going to win, lose or draw when it comes to litigating it? So there's complexity with valuation there. Um, there are doubts as to whether the appellant could pay for it. So the valuation is likely to be significant. And if there was to be a share buyout order, that would be in the tens of millions of dollars. And there was no evidence obvious that the appellant would be able to pay that sum if there was a buyout ordered. And a third reason that sort of linked to that was that there were other quite large companies who could have stood behind the appellant and perhaps promised to pay any share buyout price if it came to that. And those larger companies didn't make that promise and they didn't uh, stand behind the uh, appellant and didn't say, yeah, yeah, court, if you make this order, we will pay. And so for reasons including those, the Court of Appeal uh, dismissed the appeal and upheld the primary judgment. And we went ahead with a wind up rather than a share sale, despite that being a more drastic and dramatic sort of outcome. And in the Queensland Court of Appeal, uh, another decision, Hunter and Organic and Natural Enterprises Group, the shareholder here claimed that a restructure of a business was oppressive. Now, why was this claim unsuccessful, James? Yes, this is interesting. Um, the very short answer, if I can spoil the ending, is that this was the result of uh, not an oppressive piece of conduct, but arguably an oppressive outcome. So what you must prove in an oppression suit is that certain conduct is oppressive. Uh, so to spoil the ending, I'll now give you the, uh, the beginning and the middle. Um, here we're dealing with a company that um, initially trades in a fairly basic way, and the plaintiff is a shareholder in that company, and it's a fairly straightforward structure. Initially, a shareholder takes some dividends and you know, shares in the profits of the company, and that's all fine. And then the company enjoys some success, and there is a restructure that is undertaken. And this shareholder, who is married to another shareholder, um, now takes profits out of the company via the trading company conveying its profits into a holding company that is a unit trust, and that unit trust uh, paying uh, money into various family trusts. And our plaintiff today taking money from that family trust for so long as they remain married to their spouse. Now, uh, I think you can foresee where we are going, Susanna, uh, after a time uh, the plaintiff uh, ceases to be married to their former spouse. And so in ceasing to be married, no longer has any way to get money out of this company. The avenue is closed because of this restructure, including um, this family trust at the end. And while we might have some sympathy for what, what might be thought of as an oppressive outcome, what the court says is there is no conduct in there that is oppressive. Um, at all times, the plaintiff agreed to the restructure and the various terms of each of the documents and everything was appropriate and above board and fine and, and approved by all relevant parties. But um, the outcome arguably 
being oppressive um, was not enough. There was no conduct that could be pointed to. And for anyone feeling aggrieved for the plaintiff, um, the court makes a comment that this judgment in relation to uh, corporations law and the law of corporate oppression does not um, stand in the way of the plaintiff uh, uh, pursuing their rights pursuant to family law. And so that opportunity remains available for anyone who, who might be feeling disappointed on the part of the plaintiff. Well, an example of a, a successful oppression action is the New South Wales Supreme Court decision in Munsterman and Raywood. Why did the court order a share sale as opposed to winding up in this case? Uh, in this case, this was a good one, um, Susanna, in that the facts are great fun for anyone um, who is uh, intrigued. Uh, in, in essence, we have a 50-50 business where our uh, defendant uh, behaves very inappropriately and essentially tries to uh, undermine the business once there is an irreconcilable deadlock. Uh, they set themselves an unjustified salary. They require all payments, even for items like staples, be approved at minute of directors meetings. They send an incorrect all staff email suggesting the company can't pay wages and can't pay super. And generally, and this is something they accept in cross-examination, they agree that they are holding the company at ransom to get what they wanted. And so the court, perhaps unsurprisingly, found this conduct to be oppressive and um, a share sale was ordered. Now, Susanna, to answer your question um, as to why was it a share sale what, rather than a wind-up, in short, a wind-up is a more drastic outcome and it wasn't necessary here because the plaintiff was actually managing the company. It was bubbling along fine and the defendant was the misbehaving person. So the company was in a position where it could continue along and the court found that the sale of the shares at fair value was the appropriate course to take. So, James, what are the lessons, in summary, that we can take away from these cases for advising a client who thinks they want to make or finds themselves defending an oppression claim? Well, this is very much the same sort of answer um, where you might think about what steps can be taken to avoid or manage an oppression claim. Uh, and the short answer is a shareholders agreement, because you're either going to agree or you're going to litigate. And so that means that the steps you want to take when you're starting out your company is to try to agree on what the company is going to be all about. Or if you've missed the opportunity to do that and things aren't looking good, try to agree now, if at all possible, because the alternate to that is to litigate. And as you and I have learned today, when we've discussed oppression, Susanna, the outcome can be pretty drastic for the company and pretty drastic for the shareholders. Now, look at looking at a precautionary approach or what I like to call preventative law, what steps can be taken, James, to avoid or, or to manage such oppression claims? Yes. So if we've got one, um, it's a concern. Uh, and if we've got one, we want to straight away try to nip it in the bud if we can. So if there is some relationship that can be retained between the shareholders and directors, um, then we want to do our best to retain that. And that might be having a fairly serious and solemn you, you know, meeting to try to get everyone's heads together and negotiate an outcome. That is almost always the best outcome for the clients. And sadly, if that's not the outcome we're able to reach, then uh, as a colleague of mine uh, always uh, told me, uh, don't hesitate, litigate. Uh, and so perhaps the line ought to be don't hesitate, mediate, then litigate. But if we can't get a negotiated outcome, then we're going to have to turn to seek the court's assistance. 
Well, let's move now to derivative actions, James. A shareholder Mm. can seek leave from the court to bring a derivative action, both under the Corporations Act provisions and within the inherent jurisdiction of the court. So can you explain to us briefly what's the nature and effect of the Corporations Act provisions? Uh, The nature of the Corporations Act provisions allow um, a shareholder to, I sometimes say, stand in the shoes of a company to bring a claim. We all remember the rule of Foss and Harbottle, of course, that a 19th century case that says, look, a claim of the company should be brought by the company. So if someone does wrong to the company, it's the company who has to chase it. Now, what if you're a shareholder, you see a wrong done to the company, and because you don't control the company, you can't get the company to chase that wrong. And the classic example we have is the misbehaving director. So let's say a director runs off with all the company's money, And you as a shareholder say, wait, wait, (laughs) we need to sue that director. Well, you don't control the company because you are not the director. And so it is the derivative action that will allow you to come to court and you will seek leave um, to stand in the shoes essentially of the company to run that piece of litigation, to chase the director or chase whatever the other third party might be to try to seek to bring that claim on the behalf of the company. Oh, you explained that with crystal clarity, James. Now, when and on what basis can a shareholder uh, uh, apply to the court for leave to bring or or intervene in the proceedings? Well, um, it's not necessarily a closed set of criteria. So the application can be brought at any time, but um, in considering um, the uh, times when leave will be granted, the court will turn its mind to our different sets of criteria, depending on whether we are leaning on the Corporations Act or depending on whether we are leaning on the inherent jurisdiction of the court. Now, um, in determining whether leave should be granted or determining the basis when a shareholder can apply, um, a court will drop through a five-step process pursuant to the Corporations Act and a three-step set of criteria rather than a process, I suppose, in relation to its inherent jurisdiction. And what types of matters will the court look at or take into account when determining whether leave should be granted? Yes, uh, in relation to the Corporations Act, there are five. Uh, Point one is, is the company going to sue this person? So a plaintiff, an applicant has to say, look, the company's not gonna sue them in order to get the court to uh, grant them leave. So the second thing the applicant must show is that they're coming in good faith. And good faith isn't touchy-feely good faith. We don't all have to be holding hands and singing kumbaya. And indeed, the court acknowledges there can be genuine personal animus, real proper hurt feelings. Um, It just needs to be a genuine belief on the part of the applicant that the application is brought for the purpose of enriching the company in the company's best interests. And I say in the company's best interests loosely, because the third criteria uh, is for it to be in the best interest of the company specifically. And it must be in the best interests of the company that the applicant themselves, so the very specific person who is applying for the relief, uh, it must be in the best interest of the company that they themselves are granted leave. Uh, The fourth criterion is that the applicant must satisfy the court. There is a serious question to be tried And the fifth criterion is a notice period, which the court sometimes waives, and which I shouldn't gloss over because it's in the act for a reason, but with the greatest of respect 
Susanna is the least important of the five criteria. And uh, if the other four are satisfied, then I say again, with great respect, that the notice period uh, becomes less relevant to uh, to the application. Now, we should make clear, James, that the statutory derivative action is not available when a company is in liquidation, although the court can then, may or may not grant leave in its inherent jurisdiction. So when might a court grant uh, such an application for leave? Yes, uh, you highlight the distinction wisely. It's challenging. Uh, because what we find in relation to a company in liquidation or in lick, as I've been told, uh, cool people say it. So, Susanna, you and I are very cool, of course, so we can we can just start saying in lick now, I'm told. Uh, so if a company is in lick and the court is considering a derivative action brought in relation to that company, uh, the court is invited to exercise a discretion based on three criteria. And can I be explicit and say, in relation to a company not in LIC, which is to say a company where the Corporations Act applies, the court must grant leave if each of those five criteria are met. In relation to a company in LIC, um, the court may grant leave after considering these three criteria. So the first one is whether there is a solid foundation to the proceedings. And as you might imagine, that's quite a similar consideration, though not absolutely identical to the serious question to be tried. The second issue in relation to the inherent jurisdiction of the court is the attitude of the liquidator, whether the liquidator thinks it's a good idea. And the third consideration is practical considerations, whether the practical considerations support the inherent jurisdiction being exercised. And that's with particular, a particular eye to the financial protection of the liquidator and the estate of the company. So as we're going to find, I think, in a later example, this uh, can we protect the company and the liquidator if the application goes bad is going to be a pretty relevant one. Well, we'll take that expression in lick from the millennials. I, I had in my previous <laughs> interview a new verb given to me, which is due diligencing. Let's look at an example of an unsuccessful application where the company was in lick in the New South Wales Supreme Court decision in Carpenter and Pioneer Park. Now, here the application failed. Why was that, James? Uh, perhaps a lack of due diligence in, uh, but uh, more precisely here, what we have is a member of a corporation that is indeed in lick, uh, and the member has sought leave for the bringing of an initial application, a first instance application, and the member fails. And so the member now says, well, I wanna bring an appeal. And the member says two things. Firstly, they say, well, you've already granted me leave because when you granted me leave to bring the first instance application, you also granted me leave simultaneously to bring any appeal. And the member then said, if that is wrong, then you should just grant me leave to bring the appeal. <laughs> and uh, remembering this is a company in lick, the question was, um, about the inherent jurisdiction of the court. So the court had to look to the three criteria, remembering that is whether the proceedings have a solid foundation, the liquidator's attitude, and the practical considerations. Now, in relation to the whether the proceedings had a solid foundation, the applicant had a real problem because the applicant hadn't put on a lot of evidence about the appeal. Uh, and so that meant 
that the court didn't have a lot of material in front of it to form a view about whether the appeal was going to get up or was going to fall down. And so that meant the court had almost no basis for forming a view that there was a solid foundation for the claim. And so they couldn't and didn't form that view. Uh, the liquidator, to turn to the second criterion, um, the liquidator's view was they didn't care, but they noted that the applicant had an outstanding debt of 62,000 and bankruptcy proceedings on foot. And so the indemnity that the member offered was not of much value. And those financial issues meant that the practical considerations criterion, that third point um, was not in favor of the member as well. And so what we find was for those reasons, the court did not grant the member uh, leave to bring the derivative appeal. Well, just going back for a moment to statutory derivative actions, uh, in the New South Wales Supreme Court decision of in the matter of global advanced metals, here the shareholder claimed that the directors had sold the company's assets at an undervalue, dissatisfaction indeed. So why did the court refuse leave here, James? This was a complex one, and on the face of it, we might be able to have some empathy with the applicant here. Um, the directors sold assets of the company in 2016 for $60 million. Um, in 2018, some of those assets that in 2016 had been sold for 60 million, some of those were sold in 2018 for 1.15 billion. And so what our uh, plaintiff is suggesting is, well, hey, <laughs> they've increased in value at least 20 times in two years. I'm pretty sure you've sold them at a substantial undervalue back in the past. Now, there's a hindsight problem that the plaintiff had to confront that I'll just raise here, which is, well, really, what weight does a 2018 valuation of an asset have on its 2016 value? And the court also notes that the 2018 very high valuation was followed by a 2019 very low valuation. And so the court doesn't say this explicitly, but we might ask the rhetorical question of, well, so long as we're hopping in a time machine, um, you, you know, we might hop to a good time, or we might hop to a bad time. And so um, that hindsight problem is one the plaintiff is not able to overcome. But in remembering that there are five criteria to work through, We've got our, is the company going to bring the claim? Is the claim brought in good faith? Is it in best interests? Is there a serious question to be tried? And then the notice question. The court had um, a real challenge um, going toe to toe with um, the claim being in the best interests of the company and eventually found that despite the other criteria potentially being satisfied, it was not in the best interests of the company. And that was because of the huge disruption the claim would bring um, the fact that lenders to the company that are, that are quite important to the company might be scared off by the dispute and that the applicants undertaking to indemnify the company for the legal costs, but that there could be all sorts of other costs um, that would fall from the derivative action coming that the applicant was unable to indemnify for. And for those reasons, the court found it was not in the best interest of the company and so did not grant leave. Mm, I feel for the poor guy, though, or the poor um, uh, member. <laughs> You're being short a billion or two. Uh, we can all feel a little disappointed, potentially. So it shows dissatisfaction is not enough. Now, the next case we're going to look at is a New South Wales Supreme Court decision 
in the matter of Vicad Proprietary Limited, Potty and Dunkley, and this is one of these sad cases that concerns a farming family dispute and coming from a farming family, I know how that feels. So, James, what was the story here and why did the court grant the shareholder leave to bring the derivative action here? Well, Susanna, I hope it's not a set of facts that's afflicted your farming family or any of your neighbours, um, but it's one that might feel loosely familiar to you where we have a sort of elder parent uh, passing away and there's a squabble then between the kids, um, including in relation to running the farm. And what we have here is some of the kids who are directors of one of the relevant companies operating the family's farm, um, they are staying on the farm rent free. They're not paying rent. And so what our disappointed child does, who is a member of the relevant company, is seek the court's leave to bring the application to chase these directors to start paying this rent. And the very short uh, answer is uh, the court does grant that leave because um, the company's not going to bring the claim. These directors weren't going to sue themselves. Um, the application was brought in good faith. This, uh, this child, this sibling, might have been very grumpy, but the very fact of that grumpiness doesn't mean they're not coming in good faith. It was in the best interest of the company to be paid rent when someone's staying on its farm uh, and the notice period uh, was uh, provided for as well as there being a serious question to be tried. So the court had very little hesitation um, in granting that leave and the plaintiff was successful in that case. To assuage your concerns for me, the farming uh, time of my life was long ago and and uh, we never had one of those disputes. Now, a question without notice, James. Um, mm. A little bird told me that there's a recent case called Anna Bay Resort Proprietary Limited that was in the New South Wales Supreme Court. Is this one that we should look at in terms of fun facts of derivative actions? Yes, and interestingly, it's also a fun fact of corporate oppression. So you'll remember the first half of today's chat was about Section 233, Susanna, among other things. And we might have said Section 233 allows the court to make a huge range of orders. Um, and it is Section 236 that we think about for derivative actions. Now, what's interesting is that in the matter of Anna Bay, and this is just a nice little comment for uh, oppression nerds and derivative action nerds, and I'm sure we are all are now uh, nerds of those two areas. A nice interesting judgment for those nerds like us to note is that there, the court granted leave for the plaintiff to stand in the shoes of the company, not pursuant to section 236, but instead pursuant to section 233. And Susanna, I hope you were sitting down when I told you that, because I was very interested to read that judgment. And I thought that our litigators in this space would have been interested to hear that there is now more than one path to a derivative action. And that, along with the judgment of Gillespie's Cranes, that I also have not provided you, Susanna, and we'll have to do at some stage, um, where leave was granted for beneficiaries of a trust to bring a derivative action in relation to the trust, show that a derivative action is sort of broadening and uh, reaching its tentacles across into uh, many different and interesting areas. So pulling all these cases and stories together, James, briefly put, what's the best approach to advising the client proposing to bring a derivative action? Uh, negotiate, if at all possible. Uh, they're very expensive. They destabilise the company that's the subject of the claim and they are not guaranteed to succeed. So they are a lawyer's picnic 
and I would love every day to have a client walk in to say, I've got a derivative action. But if we're talking about the best advice for a client who's seeking your assistance, I, I don't think anyone listening will be surprised to hear me say that if a negotiated outcome can be reached, that is the outcome to have. Now, if that's not possible, um, then uh, we see these things fall down generally on technical points. Um, or sorry, I would draw the word generally. Uh, we see these things fall down sometimes on technical points. So if you are unable to negotiate that outcome for your client, the next step is to think about whether the relevant company is in lick or not. And if it is indeed in lick, um, probably to sit down and have a cup of coffee with the liquidator to see if you can get them moving. And if you can't, then you'll have to turn your attention to the inherent jurisdiction of the court. And then if the company is solvent and probably if the company is in receivership, that's a separate issue that um, I won't bore you with today at much length, Susanna, um, then we can turn to Section 236 and 237 of the Corporations Act. I just hope, James, that we don't take the millennial phrase in lick and start calling liquidators lickers. That would really offend me. <laughs> um, like we draw the line. We do draw the line. Now, James Dapperty, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. I've enjoyed the conversation and for your insights and for your nerddom. Thank you. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome everyone to the nerd community. Uh, and thank you so, so much for having me, Suzanne. I really enjoyed it. And you've been listening to Sound Education in Law. You can check out our website, www.tved.net.au, for more content on company law and practice. I'm your host, Susanna Lopez, and I look forward to speaking to you next time.